Genre. everyone, and welcome to The Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Dorothy from the Marvel comic book series, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. And joining the discussion is producer Andrew. Welcome, Andrew. Hello. Glad to have you on to talk some about this Marvel miniseries. I guess it, it ended up being a series of miniseries, kind of, is, is what we're uh, we're tackling. But we're... Yeah, pretty substantial run overall yeah we're gonna talk about the first one which was eight issues called the wonderful wizard of oz which was adapted by eric shanauer with art by scotty young and it was based on the novels by l frank Baum. and it, this was published as an eight issue miniseries from february to september 2009 and it tells the story of dorothy a girl from kansas who finds herself transported to a magical land called oz and then subsequently they did several um, additional miniseries picking up adaptations of some of Baum's. Uh, additional novels that followed his first one. Now, Wizard of Oz is kind of an odd text to try and think about when you first came to it. Do you remember, Andrew, when you first came to Wizard of Oz? Overall, I'm I'm sure I was less than five years old and saw the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's uh, like that film is such a prominent text in American culture. Like as far as cultural literacy, you kind of have to be familiar with it. Even if you haven't sat down and watched the the whole thing, I think you pick up through references and just osmosis uh, of allusions to the film version of Wizard of Oz more so than the books. Like we, we kind of, I think become familiar with Oz before we really ever sit down and read any of the books. And, And often I think even sit down and actually watch the full movie. Yeah, and I would say that it's one of those like cultural osmosis texts that most people have probably consumed at least the majority of it. You know, like culturally, you can make some fairly deep cuts about Wizard of Oz and people are going to get it. Yeah, obviously there's things like Yellow Brick Road and Ruby Slippers, which we'll talk about <laughs> um, mm-hmm. from, the, from the film that are very, very common. But then you can also start talking about things like uh, If I Only Had a Brain, uh, you know, and and some references to, to you know, your your side characters within the adventure. You know, some of the, the fellowship that Dorothy builds around her um, have become part well, of the and, culture. And I would say... Um, like even I remember in Wreck-It Ralph, they make a joke about the the chant of the guards at the at the the witch's castle from from the film version of Wizard of Oz, right? Yeah, yeah, from from the film because in the film and and like people make jokes about this little chant that they do oh wee oh wee and then in Wreck-It Ralph they make a joke with actual Oreos <laughs> saying Oreo. <laughs> Um, which is the joke everyone has made about it. Right. And I, I think it's also an interesting case where the adaptation has kind of become the ur text for so many people that mm-hmm. the sense of what the Wizard of Oz is doesn't go back to the original novel from 1900. It comes from the 1938 or 39 film. Do you remember off the top of your head if it's 38 or 39? I, I, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. I will check the recesses of my mind uh, and pull that up. But there are definitely changes between the two texts and the more popular or the more referenced is the film version rather than the original version of the story. 
Yeah. I am going to guess that it's 1938. 38 was a huge year for films. Massive year in pop culture history. We should talk about it. But this was 39. Uh, ah. An MGM film. Well, still still a fairly big year for pop culture. The, the late 30s, surprisingly dense in the real impact. And I guess part of that might be that once you get into the 40s, there's a slightly different focus culturally. Uh, yes, there, there's some real magic in the late 30s. It's, it's as though something is going to disrupt our enjoyment of that, those kinds of films in the in the mid 40s. Also, the production of uh, of those that kind of culture is going to shift yeah. quite a bit in the in the in the early mid 40s. Um, and so you have to have an extra nice appreciation for <laughs> what was available from the late 30s. Yes. I, and famously, the film was used to show off like Technicolor. It begins with the very sepia toned opening of kansas and then when dorothy gets taken to oz they they show off all the rich color the the hyper saturation that they're capable of doing with technicolor that had never really been seen in film previously and it's which which by the way holds up exceptionally well it is an excellent showcase for that technology and like you said it does hold up i was surprised recently my daughter um just as a bedtime story asked me to just pick a book and i grabbed wizard of oz it was on her shelf i don't know if i've ever actually read the book but I started chapter one and the, the first chapter is only four or five pages. And it's literally just her in Kansas. And then the house getting lifted up by Twister. That's it. You know, is what happens in the first. And I swear the word gray was used a dozen times in that chapter. <laughs> Everything in Kansas was just this um, was described as being gray. And I thought that was something they had done for the film again, because I've always heard about how it was going to show off Technicolor, but really they just chose an excellent text to adapt to show off Technicolor, to have this magical uh, world that where so much of it is described in terms of color in, in the original text. And the original text did exactly what happens in the film, where there's the flat grayness of Kansas is then contrasted with all the bright colors that is, are used to describe Oz. And visually it's, it's stunning in the film. Um, but we're going to be talking about, the graphic novel adaptation from 2009. Um, and this is really a showcase for the art of Scotty Young. Eric Sh uh, Shanauer, I think, does an excellent job adapting uh, the text. But for me, so much of the magic of this is in the whimsical art of Scotty Young. And again, we'll have some links in the show notes to where people can go find some of Scotty Young's um, examples of Scotty Young's art from The Wizard of Oz. But I would just recommend take some time with Google and type in the name Scotty, S-K-O-T-T-I-E, and young uh and you're gonna find some art that just kind of makes you feel warm and fuzzy inside <laughs> yeah it's, how it I describe is it enchanting it is like there's a great deal of it that's cute but that's not like the only thing like the wizard of oz stuff i don't think cute is the right word for it but he has like a series of covers that he did for comic books where it was you know the characters in in absurd proportions with really big heads and those are the cute things from scotty young and Wizard of Oz is is some sort of other enchanting effect. Yeah, like when you get to his first real money shot of the Wicked Witch of the West, it's not cute at all, but it's also like endearing, I guess. I don't know. I don't know how to say it, but like she's she's slouched over and drinking this drink with a giant twisty straw. <laughs> yeah, but it's also like the, the straw is like kinked in a way where you're like, okay, this is... This is crooked. Mm -hmm. And and her features are so simultaneously like angular and sketchy, but defined. I don't know how he's able to nail that. Um, our last comic book episode, we were talking about the, um, the cursed pirate girl. And we spent some time 
talking about that art, which is hyper detailed, where like every line is so firm and important in creating the image that you want to see. And Scotty Young's style feels so much looser, but at the same time, you can tell there's a deliberateness in the line work. And it is one of the most impressive feats of um, of narrative storytelling art that I like. There's something about his art that's just so special because it has that mix of feeling um, incomplete and sketched, but also deliberate and exactly what he wants to have on the page. Yeah. Um, so in preparation for this, I went back and found a couple of interviews that Scotty had done um, as episodes of the iFanboy podcast. Um, so he's been on for their their Talksplode series, which is interviews with comic book creators. And in, in one of them, he talks a lot about Wizard of Oz because that was his big hit at the time. And he's done a, a great deal um, since Wizard of Oz. Um, but he talks about like figuring out what his style of artwork is. And so it's, it's really relevant to what you were saying. And he described figuring out how to do a little, you know, add a squiggle that you will receive as wrinkles on a face. You know, he does just the right amount of impressionism that you really clearly know exactly what it is supposed to be. And so your brain really does a lot of the work of completing his art um, to a certain degree. Not, not that he hasn't created a complete thing. Like he's done exactly the amount he wants to so that your brain does the amount of work it's supposed to. Yeah, I like that a lot. And it's so interesting to contrast that with Jeremy Bastian's Cursed Pirate Girl, where there's so much hyper detail on a scale that's hard almost for your eye to take in. Um, And and they're both very successful in terms of creating uh, narrative in the comic book medium. And yet they're so, so, so different. And they're on different ends of the spectrum, kind of like they're, I guess, if you're going to do one of those quadrant things, like you'd put them both high on the whimsy side (laughs) of a quadrant versus like a realistic side. Uh, Yeah, but they'd be very different in like, the detail versus sketchiness mm-hmm. or something yeah, like how that. How defined and how loose the art is maybe. And that might not be the exact right term, but hopefully that's giving a kind of a visual for, for some of our listeners. And I think they're both masters at what they're doing. And the projects that they tackled in Cursed Pirate Girl versus Wizard of Oz, I think actually suit them very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, we're, we're going to end up talking a lot about Scotty Young's art because it is really, really fantastic. And it's just so hard to try and describe it um to people it's like well in some ways everything's a lollipop like it's all thin and then bulbous <laughs> you know and but but also some things are not at all like a lollipop mm-hmm. and some things are very square and so i can't really define it but it is fantastic it, it's beautiful but i do also and um, you mentioned eric shanauer as the the writer for the adaptation um i do want to call out like this gets so much attention for the art and i think that the way Eric uses language is the perfect match for the artwork. Um, He is not trying to overdo the language, but he's saying a lot of very meaningful things in very straightforward and matter of fact ways. Like people's lines are very straightforward and the narration is very straightforward, but that makes it right for this comic book. And that is something that, um, a lot of writers, when when adapting existing texts into comic books, sometimes there's a tendency for overwordiness because they, they bring so many of the quotes 
and uh, the original text, and and they try and put it directly in the comic books. But when you're doing that translation and adaptation to a new medium, you need to respect the constraints of the new medium. Famously, when novelists are tackling their first uh, graphic novels or or comic book, uh, they're too wordy. They they there's just too much text in the word balloons, and it needs a really tight control from an editor to pare stuff down. And I think Shanauer is is demonstrating like a, a real ability to move the the text where uh, all the, you know, all the dialogue can be as, as basically as long as you want <laughs> in a novel and condensing it into, to fit into the word balloon and making the conversations feel natural. And, uh, and yet, as you said, revealing character types in, in how the language, what, what language is going to be used within those word balloons. But it is a really significant constraint to fit, an entire entire dialogue into a little balloon in one of four panels on a page or one of seven panels on a page. Like how much space is there really? How many words can you put in? Like you kind of have to like do Twitter speak where it's like, okay, I've got this constraint of this many characters. How can I make it sound natural? And I think he does an excellent job of that. Yeah. And I think it's a very good, I'd say a better than average balance of, you know, matching this art to the words, using the art to tell the story and still using words to tell the story when necessary. Like, really the the art is you know the star of all of this but the words add a lot whereas you might think of adapting a novel that you're taking a lot of words and then using art to add to it and i think they managed to tell the story with the art and then add something from from the text yes uh all right let's run through a little bit of trivia before we we and then we'll do the quick plot summary it's it was not a very difficult plot summary to write i think in part because there's so much assumed familiarity with it. I can uh, brush through some stuff, but also uh, the story itself is pretty straightforward. You don't get, you know, twisting timelines or anything like that. Um, but some trivia about the wizard of Oz, as we've noted, L Frank Baum's first book. Uh, I'm sorry. It's Frank L Baum or is it L Frank Baum? I always get it mixed up. Uh, I think it's L Frank, L Frank Baum. I think I may have said Frank L Baum at one point earlier. I apologize if I did. But L. Frank Baum's first book in the Wizard of Oz series was published in 1900. He did not intend to write a sequel, uh, but he had a lot of very ardent uh, young fans who were begging for more stories. And he eventually, very grudgingly from everything I've read, wrote a sequel and and then tried to wash his hands of it. And then he ended up writing a dozen other sequels as well. And it seemed like he never really wanted to go back to that well. But <laughs> this is this is where he found his, uh, you know, you got to make your money where you can. And, and people were buying these. Um Particularly this adaptation that we're talking about with Shanauer and Young uh, collaborating on it. It won the Eisner Award for Best Limited Series and also Best Publication for Kids uh, in 2009 um, when, it, when it came out. And we mentioned that they went on to do several other adaptations. They did The Marvelous Land of Oz, Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, The Road to Oz, and The Emerald City of Oz. They had hoped to do all 14 novels in Baum's original series, but with both lower sales as the series was progressing, and then also the Disney acquisition of Marvel kind of threw a lot of things up in the air. Those plans were eventually scrapped. Um, and But in talking about The Wizard of Oz, one reason why it is so prevalent in our cultural uh, milieu is because it's been so popular for so long. Like I said, that first novel was in 1900. Um, after Baum passed away, uh, the series continued uh, with officially um, identified like authors who have been carrying on. And they wrote one per year for another 26 years after Baum's death, I think it was, uh, that were part of the official uh, Wizard of Oz canon from the family's estate uh and um and then our brother john helped find some of this trivia and he says a century after bomb uh wrote the series the family trust selected another author sherwood smith 
to um, write a new trilogy set in uh, the Oz world. And they were published with like a stamp uh, that labeled, um, uh, um, what was her name again? Oh, sorry, Sherwood Smith as the official uh, royal historian of Oz. Because within the world of the Oz books, eventually it starts to be hinted at that uh, Baum is receiving these stories through wireless communication from the land of Oz. So he's like, he's transcribing actual events is, is some of the conceit that starts to be presented in later books in the series. And then have you ever seen photos from the abandoned Oz theme park, Andrew? I probably have seen a few here and there, but um, I, I can't remember any specific image of it. So besides looking up Scotty Youngart, which is going to be a treat for all you listeners, uh, just Google abandoned Oz theme park and just know there was a, a kind of small attempt at a Disneyland-esque world built around the world, Wizard of Oz in North Carolina that has been abandoned and nature has started to take over. And every now and then uh, people break in and take photos of, of it. And it's a little creepy now <laughs> to see, uh, you know, the, the yellow brick road that's running through it, like all torn up by, by tree roots and things like that. Um, and, I saw that in like 2018, they actually opened it up to the public for like just six days, but not as an amusement park, but as I like walk through the decrepit uh, abandoned amusement park that nature has been uh, taking over. And, and so I guess that was a popular ticket back in 2018 when you could do such things. Um, that's about it for the trivia. So before we get to the summary, we want to thank you for downloading this episode and for listening. And we especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about any uh, new media that we've been consuming and just kind of shoot the breeze about pop culture for a few minutes uh, once a month. Now on to the summary of The Wizard of Oz. Dorothy's home in Kansas is lifted by a hurricane and she is deposited along with the house on top of a witch in the land of Oz. Uh, The witch has been killed and Dorothy inherits her silver slippers. The good witch of the North tells Dorothy that if she wants to get home, she'll have to go see the wizard at the city of Emeralds. Along the way, uh, following the yellow brick road, she meets a scarecrow who's in need of brains, a tin woodsman who's in need of a heart and a lion in need of courage. This fellowship decides to carry on to the city of Emeralds. There they put on green goggles and meet the wizard who is this giant head that's very intimidating and they make their request to him but he demands that they bring him proof that the wicked witch of the west is dead before he will grant their wishes so they make their way west the witch orders a band of flying monkeys to destroy them uh and these monkeys do destroy the tin man and the scarecrow and tie up the lion but dorothy was kissed by the good witch so they cannot harm her they do take her to the witch though and then say that their service to the witch is ended and the flying monkeys leave uh the witch tries to enslave dorothy but gets very tempted by her slippers and one time when she tries to steal them dorothy throws water on her and the witch melts dorothy is able to find and repair the tin woodsman and the scarecrow the flying monkeys take dorothy and friends back to oz there it is revealed that the terrifying floating head was a disguise and oz is really just a regular old humbug from kansas but to fulfill his word he does stuff the scarecrow's head he puts a heart pillow in the tin man's chest and he gives the lion a drink of liquid courage not sure what that means uh and then he asks for dorothy's help to sew silk for a hot air balloon ride so they can return to kansas but as the balloon is launching toto runs away and while dorothy chases him the balloon floats too far away for her to catch it she's now stranded in oz she asks the monkeys if they can fly her back to kansas but they say they cannot leave the land of oz 
it's decided that she will go after Glinda, the good witch, for help. Her friends go with her, and they have a little adventure on their way. But once they see Glinda, Glinda, she reveals that the silver shoes Dorothy is wearing will take her home if she clicks them together and wishes to go back to Kansas at the same time. Dorothy does this and return home to her Aunt M. The end. That feels like a brief summary. <laughs> I, I know, but it's really like, this, this, these are the plot beats. <laughs> um, so much of this is about the world, not the plot, right? Like, uh, there, there's magic in seeing the character design that Scotty Young adapts from the bomb text. There's wonder in the descriptions of the Yellow Brick Road and the Land of Oz. But the story itself is pretty straightforward. Yeah. Um, and I, I like how you said it's about the world more than the story, because I also feel like, especially, um, and I, I read the novel, I read a couple of the novels years ago. I, I barely remember anything from them, but, um, when reading this comic book and, and like you said, you know, it's about the world. I feel like the comic book is trying to teach you something about the world, not the world of Oz, but the world world and interacting with people and going through your life. It's not, you know, telling you a single adventure story. It's a lot of small things. And it just seems to be saying, Hey, you are going to do things in your life. You know, you are going to have a lot of small adventures with a lot of different friends and different people. And you've just got to keep going and doing your stuff. And like, there's going to be scary times and there's going to be really happy times. There's going to be people who try to help you. There's going to be people who try to hurt you and you just keep doing your thing. Yeah. Um, you just keep, get up and keep going and, and you, you try and find the best solution, uh, to, to make your life better. And, and that's it. <laughs> you can get up and carry on. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, while I was reading it, I, I took pictures of a couple of panels, particularly of, of text that I wanted to highlight. And I think the like the the one that I took a picture of that encapsulated this and, and what got me thinking about it and matched up with what you said, where you said, you know, it's about the world. Um, and this is near the beginning when she's about to to set off on the yellow brick road. The, the good witch is sending her off. And the text says, and I think this is text from from the good witch. She says, you must walk. The road to the city of emeralds is paved with yellow brick, so you cannot miss it. It is a long journey through country that is sometimes pleasant and sometimes dark and terrible. I'm like, that is a one sentence description of life, right? You are going to keep going. You will always keep going. It will be a long trip. And sometimes it's going to be nice and there's going to be beautiful things. And sometimes it's going to be dark and terrible and scary. And you continue on the road no matter what. Yeah, I like that. Um, and uh there's so much of this that can be read as um symbolism but i I think that simple heart of it is is at its core sometimes i think people get twisted up in knots trying to find the symbolism in the wizard of oz Uh, like i said our brother john uh put some of the trivia together and he mentioned to me um when i saw that he he saw an article of like seven interpretations of oz that are everything from it being about the money systems at the you know in in the late 18th like gold standard silver standard with green as 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 actual cash uh you know and and her silver shoes and the and the gold uh golden brick uh or yellow brick road road being gold uh but then there's also interpretations that are like religiously themed or psychoanalytically themed or atheistically themed and and how you can find um 
you know, I, people find all that symbolism in there. But I, I, I like the, the more simple universal message, you know, that kind of eschews some of the uh, philosophy around it and just says there's a basic message of find some friends and do your best to move forward. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And I like there's definitely room for finding the symbolism and interpreting symbolism. But I think it's one of those stories. And I feel like there's there's many of these stories where it is vague enough to be very applicable to very many things, mm-hmm. but specific enough for you to learn something about all those different things. Yeah, I, I, I like that. And I think there's so much that's interesting about the world of Oz that Baum created that it invites that kind of symbolic interpretation from readers uh, as to whether or not that was intended or uh, what meaning we take from it. it in some ways, it doesn't, doesn't really matter. Uh, if, if you can defend the interpretation with enough textual evidence, you're, you're welcome to it. Um, and authorial intent can be uh, something that adds insight, but it doesn't it certainly isn't the be all end all in terms of the takeaway that audiences have from a text in any way, shape or form. And, and so I don't, I don't mind that there's so many different interpretations of it out there. I think it, it is an implication of the richness of the text and the kind of fascination that so many people have had with the world of Oz. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of, um, there's an episode of Parks and Rec where there is a debate about whether or not the government should put a copy of Twilight into a time capsule. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the arguments is, this is overtly Christian. The imagery is unmistakable. And one of the arguments is, this is not Christian. This is anti-Christian. This is heresy. <laughs> it's like, well, if you have enough room for everything, then everyone can read something from it and, and gain something from it. Or, or in the case of the Parks and Rec episode, attack something in it. Yeah. But it seems like Wizard of Oz is much more inviting and people are saying, well, I find this that, that makes me feel good. And you have a lot less that, no, I, I hate this because it represents something I'm against. Yes, or it's somehow indoctrinating the children who read it uh, into, you know, communism or whatever, you know, threat. Yeah, I, I feel like the symbolism is vague enough that you're not going to be able to put a strong argument into indoctrination. Mm-hmm. But if you want to say, well, like this works with, you know, my personal life philosophy and this, I mean, it's just such nice, good life philosophy. You know, no one philosophy. It's just here's some options. And I think some of that comes through in, in the characters specifically like the scarecrow and the woodsman talking about, you know, what's more valuable intellect or feeling. Yeah. And the, the things that people lack are, aren't going to be the same thing. The things that people need in order to progress are not the same, but as a group, maybe you can help each other uh, along that path. Like I really do enjoy that part of, Hey, we're all struggling individually and as a group, like our goal isn't actually going to be that we all resolve the same thing and now we're all better. Like we all have individual needs, but as a group, we can all be progressing towards those individual needs and, and hopefully the, uh, you know, becoming better versions of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, and I like the way that they, they support each other in all of their efforts and, and evolve and they do form a, a tight group. You know, they are very committed to each other um, throughout the, the story and supporting Dorothy in particular, she's the one that brings them together. And so they say, well, when Dorothy needs us, we are, we are there, you know, we're leaving all of our other responsibilities to help her finish her mission. Even as you know, the scarecrow gets what he wants and the tin man gets what he wants and the lion gets what he wants. Um, and then they each get a kingdom 
<laughs> that they can rule over. Yeah. Um, but they still say, well, I will come back to my kingdom after I take care of Dorothy. And I totally believe that they will. And then you get to the end where they're saying goodbye to Dorothy. And it's, there's moments in the story that move so rapidly, like in the entire first issue um, where it gets to, you know, the, the tornado and the house and she gets to Oz. It's, it's like seven pages, <laughs> you know, to, to get into that. And then at the end, it feels like it's wrapping up very quickly and, you know, she hugs all of them and she says goodbye and then she clicks the slippers and, and then she is genuinely just home and it ends. Right. And it wraps up, but it doesn't feel like anything's missing. It feels totally fulfilled, even though you didn't have a page dedicated to a goodbye with each of the characters. Everyone had said what they needed to say. They had supported each other. Everyone had gained something from each other. And I think it's a really positive um, example of relationships in, in stories so often and, and in life, we get into the approach of long-term relationships. You know, like people need to be in it for the long haul um, kind of thing. And I think this is a really healthy demonstration of, of a type of relationship that we don't think about as much, which is a really strong, healthy relationship makes you less dependent on the people in the relationship. A really strong, healthy relationship is going to make you dependent and free to operate on your own without them. Yeah. And I think it also shows an interesting blend of selflessness and selfishness. Like they all have their needs that we said, and they never actually forget their needs. Like the scarecrow is aware that he needs brains the whole way through. And yes, he is also helping his friends to get what they need. And that selflessness is what allows them to work better as a unit. But I, th I think if you swing too far in either direction, like if you're too selfish, you're a monster, right? <laughs> um, and, and we have examples of that in literature and real life all around us. Like we don't even have to really think too hard about the how wrong or how twisted your worldview can become through utter selfishness and the narcissism that can be incorporated within that. And then if you're too selfless, you become the giving tree from Shel Silverstein, which is like the strange horror <laughs> story of a children's book um, where like a lack of boundaries as to how much of yourself you will give to other people literally ends up with you destroying yourself and, and nothing being left of you. <laughs> um, and I, I think this shows a good blend of people loving and caring for each other, but also being aware of what their own needs are. Mm -hmm. and, and achieving their own satisfaction. Yes. And if they'd been too selfish, they would not have been able to form the group that accomplishes the task before them. And if they'd been too selfless, they wouldn't have gotten the prizes that they needed to become better versions of themselves. Mm -hmm. And, and I really like how you described that where it's a balance of selfish and selfless. And there's also, you know, throughout the story, a balance of like devotion to each other and also weirdly abandonment of each other when necessary <laughs> to a certain degree. Like there are moments where it seems like somebody's going to be left behind and everyone just kind of squares up and says, look, if we can figure out a way to save them, we save them. If not, then that's how life goes. <laughs> I mean, in some ways it's kind of like, uh, you know, you're, you're, you and your college roommates, like where, where, okay, you're going to form a really tight bond with this group of people for a time. And then literally you're all supposed to go your separate ways. And if you see each other or, or uh, maintain a loose contact, great. But this is not going to be a bond. That's going to be daily contact for the rest of your lives. Most likely <laughs> it's going to be 
oh, mm-hmm. we, we went on a really great contained adventure about uh, in this era of our lives. And now we've all had to move on to the next stage. And whenever we see each other, that is great. We're happy to do it. But that doesn't like our sense of self and identity isn't l- laden with only being part of this one group. And if we're separate from that group, we don't know who we are anymore. Yeah. And, and so there's such a wonderful attitude of, you know, gaining what you can from these relationships while you have them, knowing that they will end, knowing that you will still have gained what you gained Mm -hmm. from it. You know, like you get to the end and Dorothy is so sad to leave them, but she wants to go home. And so she knows she has to leave them, but you also know that she will maintain everything that she gained from the adventure. And she will always think differently because of having known the scarecrow and she will you know, behave differently because of having known the woodsman and all those things. And it's like, this has an impact on you just because you aren't connected to these friends anymore. Um, doesn't mean that you have lost the connection to what you experienced. You know, it's like, it's, it's hard to even describe because it seems like such an unusual narrative and to see, to like have so much joyful sorrow at the end when she says goodbye and gets back home. Now, let's talk a little bit about Dorothy as a character. Um, I think in some ways what happens in this text, because we get such um, broad side characters who have like very unique features that feel so outside the norm, like like it's a walking scarecrow that's in the need of a brain. That's a little different than your average character. Um, or or the, the Cowardly Lion. And I love how Scotty Young draws the Cowardly Lion, where it is both this massive presence and also timid simultaneously. I don't know how he nails it, but he does very much so. Um, yeah, he just, he's so big, but he, he's so like pigeon-toed yeah. <laughs> the whole time. Like his, his feet are so small and his body is so big. Um that Dorothy kind of becomes a canvas on which these broader characters are, are the splashes of color. And I, I think there's a, a, a risk of like losing sight of who Dorothy is within this. So let's take a little bit of time to kind of dissect who, who we think Dorothy is um, at least in this version of the wizard of Oz, what are some of the characteristics that we can take away from, from her as the, I, the protagonist? I definitely think of Dorothy in, in this uh, iteration and it, it's kind of the nature of the whole story, but I think it comes from Dorothy first and foremost is matter of factness um, it, in how she responds to everything. It's like, okay, well here's how things are and here's how things are. And I'm going to do my best in whatever crazy situation I am in. Like I, one of another, one of the panels that I had, um, taken a picture of is right from the beginning when she is in the midst of the tornado and says the hours passed and nothing terrible happened. Dorothy resolved to wait calmly and see what the future would bring. (laughs) And then she goes to bed during like inside the house in the tornado because she can't do anything else. It's like, well, I've been waiting for hours. The storm seems pretty bad. I can't really do anything else. So I am going to go to bed and see what happens in the morning. And within that matter of factness, like she takes in this very surreal world in which she gets deposited and she takes everything in stride pretty well. Um, like, like, yes, she wants to go home, but she's not having an emotional breakdown uh, because of the strangeness that surrounds her. She has a quest, which she's going to try to complete and she's going to get very unexpected help along the way. But she likes them who for who they are these people that come around her and like i I think she has an open-mindedness in uh in learning about the world around her even though it has no context that feels familiar to her Mm -hmm. 
And and the way we're talking about this makes it seem like she's a logical robot, and she's not. Mm-hmm. Like, she does have emotional moments. You know, she gets scared and reacts in fear. She gets scared and and cries because she thinks she won't be able to get home. You know, she does have these emotional moments, and she experiences them, and she processes them, and she, she expresses her emotions in, in an appropriate way. She's very efficient about it, maybe too efficient, but... She, you know, she's experiencing sadness and fear and everything. And then she, you know, gets back to being calm and rational. And this is, I mean, this is how humans experience emotions is we feel the intense swell of the emotions. We have to express them somehow crying, venting, shouting, you know, all of those kinds of things. And then the logical side of our brains starts to take over again and we can assess the situation again and we say, okay, here's where we're at. I'm going to do this. <laughs> and I, I, I like what you said, because um, that emotion side of her is that what I think allows her to make good, strong bonds uh, with, with, with her, her little fellowship uh, that, that comes up around her. If she had just been a logician driven to reach her goal, um, the emotional resonance wouldn't have been there. Yeah. And so it's not like she is overly logical or, or, or wise or, or smart, you know, that is not her defining characteristic, but she does approach it with, with a certain amount of wisdom and an appropriate wisdom, but also an appropriate amount of care and kindness. I think kindness would be another one of her key characteristics. Yeah. I I think kindness is very key. Um, like when she first meets the scarecrow, um, like the, her first interaction is, is an act of service, like help helping him. And similarly, when they get to the Tin Man, like it's, how can I help you is one of the first concerns that it, that is expressed, not fear or, um, or again, like uh, the kind of Machiavellian, how can this person help me on my quest? It's not, how can I, how can I help you right now? There's an empathy uh, that definitely permeates her interactions with others. Yeah. And it's very um, like pleasantly casual. It's like, Oh, hey, like, I'm here, you're here, you seem like you could use some help, what can I do? And it's not that she is stopping her quest, it is, you know, in this moment, it looks like I could help somebody else. Let me do that, and then I'll get back to what I was doing. You know, it's a small inconvenience, a small amount of time out of my day. You know, but she she sees the value in everyone else that she interacts with. And, you know, if there's a, a little bit of service that she can offer, then that is worthwhile in and of itself, not just because it may serve her at some point in the future, which it almost always invariably does. <laughs> yeah. I, I think there's a, um, a tightness to the plot that, um, you know, none of these moments are, are tenden- tangential to uh, the final action, right? You know, every, every um, aid that she renders is paid off by the end of the, these eight issues in, in a return uh not that she was expecting but in like, like poetic justice right you know that she she has been kind therefore kindness will be returned to her sort of way mm-hmm. yeah and it seems so so well balanced and everything like that 
so we have uh that there's uh a blend of cool rational logic as well as like warm empathetic emotion coming from dorothy i I think there's also the focus we 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 should um cite um you know this this is uh as much as it's a story about the world this is also the story of the quest you know the classic hero's journey where she has been uh left the world that she knows crosses the threshold is deposited into into the new world where a mentor sends her on her path and she gathers the fellowship and she never loses um, sight of that quest. One thing that I thought was interesting because of the prominence of the 1939 film version of Wizard of Oz in which the antagonist of the Wicked Witch is so uh, prominent and is an adversary and an antagonist from from the very beginning. Uh, the Wicked Witch of the West in this, and therefore I assume the novel, because this feels like I, I from everything I've read, is a more... Cl- uh, faithful adaptation than the, than the film uh, is just a, a chapter of her story and a singular obstacle to be overcome, not a threat that pervades her time in Oz. Yeah. I, I think, you know, it seems like she shows up like maybe in issue four and is maybe present in issue five and that's about it. Right. So you kind of go in expecting, okay, like when is she going to start antagonizing her? When's the, and your little dog too going to come. And it doesn't, you know, it's just one of the little adventures that she has throughout the story. Um, and, and it is a significant hindrance to her opportunity to return home. But that's because it's an obstacle that Oz puts in her way, not that it is a natural obstacle or something that the Wicked Witch has been plotting. Yes. Um, like it, in the film, isn't it like the she's angry that the she she blames she Dorothy for sister. the de- death of her sister and we yeah, see and her slippers the whole time very early on in dorothy's entrance into the world of oz the wicked witch is a presence and a threat um and something that's going to uh hinder dorothy frequently uh, uh, on her journey yeah and and almost every threat that you see come up throughout the the comic book version um and i, I like you said i assume um, related somewhat to the the novel, um, there's a number of threats. You know, they have to cross a river, and there's the field of poppies and everything. And in the movie, they turn all of those into actions of the witch. Where in this version, it's like, no, there's just times when the journey's hard, or there's some sort of obstacle or a trick that you have to get through. Yeah. Oh, now I'm, I, it has been so many years since I watched the film version. Like, isn't there like a sky riding threat at one point where she's riding in her room yes. and writing a message? Yeah, there, there is. There's definitely that. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm just remembering that she is really, um, a consistent. And she, uh, she tries to light the scarecrow on fire and that's not in the story. The scarecrow, I think never catches fire mm-hmm. in the comic book. And again, um, this is an adaptation. Maybe some things are different from the novel, but from everything I've read, this is more, more faithful. And, and I'm not trying to say that there's anything wrong in the 1939 film. It's just a, one of those fascinating things where there's so much that's different. Uh, and, um, we have the original text. We have that one that feels like the original text for so many people. And to see this, some of the subsequent adaptations and how they're either reacting to the 1939 film or uh, building off of the 1900 novel. Like, how, how are we dealing with all of this? Yeah. Um, and it's just so interesting to see how you have such a different adaptation coming here. And one that I think is is like both of these are successful. Like I, the film is a classic for a reason. It gets taught in, in intro to film classes, you know, for uh, because of its its really 
uh, its achievement as a as a filmmaking endeavor. Um, it is pretty amazing. Uh, and the 1900 novel was a bestseller uh, from from the get go. And like we said, within Baum's lifetime, spawned. 13 sequels i think it was and then after his death for decades there was a new official oz novel coming out every single year around christmas time shrewd marketing uh <laughs> by the mom estate there uh and, and this remains part of the like texture of american popular culture um to the point that like the the ruby slippers from the film are in the smithsonian like there's there's so much about this that remains iconic um, even if there are those differences of these adaptations. And then this comic book adaptation is never going to have as wide an audience as either the novel or uh, the film. That's just not the nature of, of comic books um, and, and its presence in popular culture in the 2000s. And this was done in 2009. But when it came out, it won awards. It stood out, particularly in terms of what Marvel was producing at the time, where Marvel is clearly known for its superhero fare, even though there have been other sides and um, like sub publishing initiatives from Marvel throughout its, its entire history. But in, in the two thousands, when this was happening, like this was kind of unheard of. And it, I, it feels like it was an effort to create an evergreen text for Marvel, meaning something that could always be on the bookshelf at a, yeah, as a collection in, in a comic book store or in a, a traditional bookstore. And it would have a spot there forever where so much of the, the material that Marvel often puts out is um, of fleeting importance and significance because it it's always pushed out by the next monthly comic that comes out. And, uh, the, you know, the comic book narrative is going on forever. Like what happens in 2005 doesn't always have a huge impact on what happens in 2020. But this is a text that can just exist as a wonderful, fully realized um, story that is leaning into the strengths of the comic book medium and will find an audience just because of the quality with which it, it was produced. And I think it checks a lot of those boxes. Yeah. It, it, it really is fascinating that, um, you know, a hundred years after the novel and, and 70 years after the movie, you get this, this new adaptation, which really I think stands up as well as, as the movie, you know, it really, is its own thing. It operates under its own principles um, and it achieves its own goals. Um, and again, it, each one of these texts, it has such different elements that they're going to rely on to make meaning as story, to uh, reveal the narrative to the audience. And the film um, is again, so iconic because it did everything right for what film could do in 1939 uh, and leaning into the strengths of that type of storytelling and yeah there are some aspects of it that that probably feel a little dated to the modern audience but it still holds up so well that you, know, that you can brush past those um and this comic book leans into scotty young's art and again that uh minimalist uh textual narrative uh coming from shanauer in terms of uh how do, how do you translate full conversations into five word balloons on a page and make it feel natural that everything that needed to be said was said in ways that are both going to advance the narrative, but also reveal character. And he's able to do that successfully. So it's leaning into what makes comic books special and unique in terms of storytelling. And so we get this, this one story, the wizard of Oz, Dorothy going from Kansas to Oz and returning home uh, in uh, its original narrative uh, novel medium, the, the film. And now this graphic novel and they're all doing t telling the same story in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it's definitely worth talking about the additional three main characters throughout this story. I mean, it's, it's the scarecrow, the woodman and the, the lion. 
I thought you were going to throw Toto in there. Sure, as well. I mean, Toto serves even less in this than in the movie. Toto is um, just the literally the MacGuffin that Dorothy chases that gets her to the adventure and also to stay in the adventure when the uh, hot air balloon's going. That's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, he he really does very little. Um. So, so should we go in order of the character's appearance? Should we start with the Scarecrow? Yes. Um, who gets uh, a very gangly interpretation from Scotty Young. <laughs> uh, a loose-jointed version of the Scarecrow, which, um, as... Uh, uh, what's the best way to describe the Scarecrow in the, in the film adaptation? Kind of Dick, Dick Van Dyke-esque in terms of how he's the, the actor, whose name I can't remember, was able to bend his body um, with, without even the constraints of actual uh, human body structure. Uh, Scotty Young's able to lean into the idea that this is just a living Scarecrow that is literally just rags stuffed with straw and make the appearance something very different than a human portraying a Scarecrow. Yeah, the the proportions are you know a little bit off, and and there's really no like explanation or justification for how he lives. Mm-hmm. You know, like what what is the animating force behind him? And so, which is kind of the nature of many things in the Wizard of Oz is look, it just is. Yeah, you know, here's here's what's what, and Scarecrow's alive. Okay. Don't worry about other questions. Now, the the quest for the Scarecrow is to get a brain. Um, when we're beginning with a Scarecrow that's alive and has thoughts and desires, how much of a brain does the Scarecrow need? <laughs> well, and throughout the story, they, they really establish like, look, he's the one who's doing thinking. Yeah. He doesn't. He And I, I think that's like an interesting contrast that they do is he's the one who does the thinking, but he is not the one who already has knowledge. Right. They they try to like establish that where he's like, well, I don't know about this stuff, but it seems like if we just do this, then something's going to happen. Yeah, I, I, you know? I like that. Um, one of the things that makes the scarecrow tick. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's and it's all about like thinking into action. It's not even thinking for its own sake. He always has an idea when it is relevant. And the rest of the time, he seems quite content to not be thinking about things. And so it. You know, it's almost a commentary about using your your knowledge and your brain to do something. Mm-hmm. You know, don't just have it. Don't just retain information, but take action with it. All right. Now, the Tin Woodsman. I, I do want to point out it, it is just Tin Woodman. Oh, I keep throwing uh, in the S. No, no, no interposed S there, which I don't know why. I just noticed that. And I'm like. It's very consistent. I, I would have thought of it as the woodsman, but it's definitely woodman. I wonder if they said it in the film, because I definitely have woodsman in my head. But that could be, uh, again, the larger cultural idea is just seeping. Yeah. And so his quest is for a heart. And in some ways, it's I like, it. What, what do you think the heart is standing in for? Is it just like a kind of a soul or, or just? Uh... I mean, it seems to be implied that it, it is about love and affection and, and caring about others. But he... Like they make a, a very clear point throughout the series that he is the one who is most concerned about the lives of others and the well-being and survival of other creatures, right? He's he is already the most sensitive one. Um, like he steps on a bug at some point and cries so much that it rusts rusts his jaw closed. And he says, "See, if I, if I had had a heart, then I wouldn't have to be so careful about looking to step on him. It would it would come naturally to me," which I think is 
so the argument is if he had a heart, then he would have natural caring and empathy for, for others, but it's probably more valuable to have the intentional empathy and caring. Right. Like he, he is living by choice, what he thinks the heart will give to him without by nature, that by nature, maybe, um, at what well, it's, it's kind of similar to the scarecrow. Like they, they kind of already have what they're looking for in some ways. They're looking for, um, maybe some external validation for something that is already internally consistent within them. Yeah. Or, or, you know, it seems like they are putting the effort into being what they want to be naturally, what they, what they wish they didn't have to put effort into, but by putting effort into it, they naturally become that. Mm -hmm. And I think there's, and there's something to be said as far as like a message about that. Um, You know, the idea that, uh, you know, if, if you're, I, if you're trying to be a kinder person, uh, well, start being a kinder yeah, person, you start acting more kindly. And, and like, I remember and it becomes natural over time. Yes, exactly. Like um, every once in a while, like you see some story of kindness online. And if you go read the comments at all, you'll see like, Oh, this is so fake. There must be some ulterior motive. No one's that kind. It's like, Literally, that person is that kind. Like, this is the story of someone who is that kind. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm, I'm pointing at them right now. <laughs> um, and we're highlighting them. And even if you want to say, like, uh, you know, maybe uh, they weren't naturally that kind. Like, something has made them act this kind in this way in this moment. Uh, yeah. And so so what is nature? Is nature what comes naturally or what you nav- naturally seek to develop? Mm-hmm. You know, like. Putting an effort into developing, I mean, like if we're going to talk about examples of this in the real world, you know, like the natural human body does not look the way that movie stars look, (laughs) you know, they have to work to achieve that physical form. Right. In terms of their diet, their exercise, maybe some other things. (laughs) Yeah. But when they achieve it, then you recognize them as being in that physical form and it's like, well, it took the time and effort and energy and you can't discount that. They don't just get there, mm-hmm. you know, like they do have to put the work in, they do have to put the time in, they do have to change their diet and exercise and, and, and training. And it's, it's a great deal of time and effort for them to do it. And I think in many cases we don't give enough credit to that. Just like we don't give credit to, you know, the effort people have done to to cultivate their their intellect and, and sharp wits and and emotional um, fortitude or caring or nurturing tendencies. And like these are not all natural things. Every natural thing would be less than what it is if people didn't cultivate it. Right. Um, and so if there's something that you want out of your life, brains, a heart, anything like that. You have to begin doing it. And and the first thing is having that desire. You know, that's what is the indicator for, for the scarecrow and the woodman is they have a desire for a brain or for a heart. And because they desire it, they want to act in accordance with that, even when they think they don't have it. Right. Um, but that action produces it. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about uh, the lion. Uh, again, I, I think this is probably my favorite visual design from uh, Scotty Young. Uh, the uh, Again, like there's just this intimidating mass to the lion uh, that mm-hmm. he is consistently able to make look 
cowardly, <laughs> you know? Uh, and, and I think it's some of what you said where it's, uh, you know, kind of the lollipop shape. Like it's this little tiny body with a giant mane and head uh, on top and the positioning and uh, how drawn in the little lion paws are constantly in this do uh, create that, that timidity uh, that, that is necessary for uh, the, the kind of uh, contrast of visual appearance versus nature to be communicated through a visual medium, which is, you know, even just saying that sentence out loud can sound a little contradictory, but it, it is accomplished. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And and so his objective is to have courage, um, but when he tells his story, it's obvious that he's demonstrating courage. You know, he says, every time I get scared, I just act brave. But I would like to be brave and not have to act so much. <laughs> right, this is exactly what we've just been talking about. Like, just do the thing you, you know, act the way you want to be and it will become a habit and, and it will become part of who you are. Yeah, and, and so he need like you said, the external validation is all that he's seeking so that he can say, oh, I am brave. I'm not acting brave anymore. I am brave. Yes. <laughs> which, is, which is absurd because by every demonstration, he is, you know, courageous and brave in, in every instance that we come upon. Now, in, in, it's interesting in like running through these where we say like each one of these three actually already has the thing that they're searching for and the the quest is just going to serve as further evidence that they already possess what they perceive to lack is then contrasted with um, Dorothy's quest, which is very literally to get to a place where she is not and uh, that, that no one knows how she could, um, you know, make that passage uh, from, from Oz uh, back, back to Kansas. Uh, like maybe you could say there is the idea that she's seeking for a home and she's able through the strong bonds of friendship to make a home in Oz. Uh, but, but she still goes back to yeah, Kansas. She does still go back to Kansas. And that is quite literally and obviously her goal. Like it's, she's not looking for a metaphorical home where she can feel that she belongs. She's literally wanting to get back to the farmhouse that a twister lifted her off from. Yeah. And I, and I wonder if, like there's something more to that, like the way that she is naturally able to feel at home and she, she does feel so comfortable. Like you could imagine her just saying, no, Oz is my home. Now I can, I can live with this. I've got great people around me. It's going to be fine. You know, like maybe because it is easy, that can't be the solution. Yes. I wouldn't ask, you know, like settling down. Mm -hmm. Well, because she could, it's important for her to strive for the other objective. Right. And I feel like it's more of a postmodern move to say you can choose your family in your home uh, that will supplant like your natural born family and home. And, and we're not there in 1900 when Baum is writing this. Um, but that's certainly the, the subtext and even the overt text of more postmodern ideas is, you know, the, the supplanting of a natural born family with your chosen family, as you find a place where you fit in often with, uh, people who are so different than, uh, what, what your original family was, but you find that you fit in better there. And that's not what the story is, uh, at all, even though she does fit in, in Oz and she does make friends. That's not what the story is about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's, kind of hard to really pin down what is Dorothy's journey. Certainly she gains things from, from the adventure, right? Mm -hmm. She is, um, you know, wiser and kinder and, and more courageous herself by the end of it. Um, And so she certainly gains more of, again, things that she already had, 
you know, she already was rational and kind and, and brave in some ways. Um, and so like, is she transformed? You know, she doesn't change what she desires out of the adventure. She wants to go home. So she does go home. I, I think in some ways it, it goes back to the root that the story isn't really narrative driven or even character driven. It is about the world and her quest is really what allows us to go on a journey through Oz and kind of explore Baum's imaginative creations um, and, and like road trip through different, very strange and unfamiliar uh, groups of people and sites and uh, vistas of Oz. You know, I'm, I'm starting to suspect something about this and maybe other stories as well. I think the purpose of it was for us, the reader to gain something and not for the character to gain something. Well, I, I think like when we went back and started this discussion, in some ways Dorothy can get a little lost in talking about the characters of Oz because there's so many bigger, brighter, and also more simplistically, uh, you know, like, like, uh, there's just this one defining attribute. It, it's a lion who's cowardly. Boom. That That's all we need to know about the cowardly lion. Right. Uh, and so Dorothy herself can get a little lost. And I think that's part of the nature of this kind of quest text, um, where she is the reader's eyes into an unknown world. Um, I, I think that's not an uncommon, um, issue to run into when it comes to characterizations of uh, protagonists who are pulled into a strange world like Alice in Oz or uh, Wendy and uh, and the Darling Boys into Peter Pan, right? Like, who are they as characters? Uh, it's a little harder to nail down because the magic is the world. Yeah, but but and part of it, I think, is is the way that, um, you know, they structure kind of philosophical discussions and arguments and and you know, contention between not contention, you know, the scarecrow and the Tin Man are not arguing, but they do have disparate points of view. And I, I feel like, yeah, the point is for you, the reader to like, think about what matters to you and gain something from, from reading this. You're not really watching Dorothy transform. You're not watching these characters transform because they already have what they, what they get at the end. Mm-hmm. So it's really for you to transform. And part of it makes me think, and, and um, when you talked about, you know, Alice in Wonderland and, and Peter Pan, those also kind of fit into it. But this one, because of that philosophical approach, it makes me think of a lot of like speculative sci-fi where you're put into this scenario and you, you get the extremes of, you know, attitude or approach or philosophy and says, now you reader, you're supposed to be thinking about this. This is the point, you know, that's kind of the, the Asimov style of sci-fi or even um, going back to an old episode, tough voyaging where he's going on those small adventures and seeing a couple of different societies with different approaches to things. And, and he really just kind of interacts with them and does his thing. He doesn't really have a transformative experience. And this is again, that same sort of thing. So it's, it really is like for the reader to gain something from not for you to watch a hero gain something. Mm -hmm. All right. Any final thoughts about the wonderful wizard of Oz, the Marvel comics adaptation of, uh, Frank L. Bombs or, Oh man, now I'm doing it again. I'm panicking. L. L. Frank Frank Bombs, Bombs, (laughs) 1900 novel. I highly recommend it. I'm with you on that. 
Um, okay, I think that's going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you may want to go check out episode number eight, when we talked about Tangled, or episode number 294, when we talked about Cursed Pirate Girl. Just trying to hit the wide end of, of uh, you know, bookending our, some of our discussions across almost 300 episodes of the protagonist podcast there you can reach us by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com we're also on twitter you can follow at protagonist pod or at jay and our producer andrew is at his minute and our facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonist podcast thank you again for listening we'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story so Um, but also, you can't do that because I do an outtake on every episode. Ah, that's true. Well, at least now you have one, just in case we do run pure from here to the end. <laughs>